Hey everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Epic Angels Investor Talk podcast. Today, we're shaking things up a bit. Instead of our usual conversation with founders about their startups and what caught our attention to potential investments, we're diving into the world of venture capital with some fellow investors. We'll be discussing a hot topic in the VC space, sharing insights and exchanging ideas. So grab your headphones and get ready for an exciting and informative conversation. Let's dive in. Generative AI, ChatGPT, GPT-4. At this moment, I don't think that there is a single day where I don't use these words. And I'm clearly not the only one. OpenAI only launched ChatGPT 107 days ago. And already people freak out when they can't get access because of capacity issues. They reached 1 million users in five days, 100 million users in two months, and an expected revenue of 1 billion by the end of next year. Already six generative AI companies have reached unicorn status, and every day new generative AI startups are reaching the markets. At Epic Angels, the number of pitch decks we receive with the magic words generative AI have already increased. So how do we go about analyzing these deals? What are the things we need to look for and the questions we need to ask? That is the topic that we will speak about today. So my name is Mikey Doyer, founder and managing partner of Epic Angels, Asia's largest female-only angel syndicate. And I'm speaking with two of our Epic investors, Shemaine and Catherine. Shemaine is an engineer, an ex-Googler, where she launched Google Translate. And in addition, she's been helping startups worldwide with tech and their tech teams. And Catherine has built and supported startups globally from Malaysia to Silicon Valley with a strong focus on human-centered design. Shemaine and Catherine, I'm super excited to be in this conversation with both of you. Welcome. This whole thing, right, this whole generative AI, maybe we need to start a little bit at the beginning. And I think, Shemaine, with your mm-hmm. engineering background, you're well-positioned to answer this question. What is generative AI, actually? Yeah, well, so I asked the system most well-positioned to answer this question and <laughs> basically asked to add GPT, right? And we put in a prompt, how would you explain it to your grandma? And just to make sure we agree on what we're talking about, like, ChatGPT says generative AI is a specific type of artificial intelligence that focuses on creating new things or ideas. It's like a creative computer program that can generate images, write stories, or compose music. So, for example, if you're telling your grandma about this, you might say, like, hey, grandma, like, you know, generative AI can help create new recipes by combining ingredients in ways that no one has ever thought before. I can write a poem based on your favorite topic. It learns from examples. So it's like a computer version of an artist who has seen many paintings and now create their own unique artwork. What is that, that difference between generative AI and AI? Because AI, we've been used to that for years now. What's that generative part really here? Yeah, so the generative part is about creating new things. It's not mm-hmm. just about finding patterns or helping machines. Generally speaking, it helps machines think and learn like humans. So like, for example, understanding language or recognizing images or solving problems. But with the generative AI, you can actually come up with new things. It can write completely new language, new stories, new songs. And this is the part that's kind of mind-blowing because you've seen the crazy images that are created by systems like Dali. What I'm also really surprised about is that all of a sudden, all these companies are getting to the market at the same time. Right? There's OpenAI, yeah. there's Cards, there's uh, Baidu, um, everyone just launches... Why is now that moment that it all gets to the surface? Yeah, it's a really interesting story. So, first of all, back it up. GPT stands actually for Generative 
pre-trained transformers. Transformers was like a concept, a model that was invented at Google in 2017 to improve translation, like language translation. But what the GPT models did was train using a lot of data, add a ton of neurons to this neural network. And it turns out that the more of these neurons you add, the exponentially better the performance gets. So suddenly you had these like really powerful models that can understand language, but also can generalize beyond what you trained it on. So for example, you could teach it a new language, you explain the rules to it, or just learn to create, you know, learn to create music, create images. And the interesting thing is that it's pre-trained. And so because it's such a large model, these large models, they can only be really done by the big players. So the big players have gone and built these huge foundational models that are pre-trained. And so now you can sort of like consume these models, like use these models to do tasks that previously you would have to have some like machine learning engineers, get them to like get a bunch of data together, train a model, and then do one specific task. And now you have these huge models where you basically can just like talk to it, pet with it, give it some prompts. And we'll do essentially the same thing. That's really quickly and really low barrier to entry. Like you don't need a lot of, you didn't need an expert to get a very basic task done. And that's why everyone is kind of like jumping on this bandwagon because these APIs that OpenAI has made available, for example, are just available for everyone to use, right? It's kind of like when, if you think back to when Apple released the iPhone platform, right? And now we can develop, keep come on and make apps. We're in that early, early stage right now where everybody's jumping on and like making like farming apps. Or I remember like Facebook get pokey apps. You know, it's kind of like the beginning where people are playing around and trying to get to know this technology. So it's going to be really interesting to see where the technology goes. Yeah, and I think Catherine, you see a lot of different categories popping up as well because generative AI is such a big word. What are the things you've been seeing? Yeah, because it kind of reminds us all of the the Web3 buzzwords from previous years. So obviously within generative AI, there's you can create videos, you can create text, you can create images, data, models, audio, code, avatars. So the list just keeps growing and growing. And as you look at the market landscapes, you see more and more startups pop up in each of those areas, enabled by those core foundational models that Shamine was talking about. And it kind of reminds us as well of previous technology cycles with, for example, low-code, no-code um, revolution or movement with machine learning and the use cases that popped out of that, which if we remember things like website development, coding, um, other types of startups popping up that can create these types of apps without requiring that machine learning expertise. So, you know, everything is new and everything is old at the same time. Sometimes it feels like that, right? Like we've seen this before, but also it's different. So that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of discussion happening, like, is this here to stay? Is this a hype that will disappear a year later, like Web3, no one hears about this anymore? Or is this just like internet when that got launched or mobile when that got to the market? I mean, it's too early to say, of course, we're definitely still <laughs> early days, but what are your expectations around this? Well, I think this the technology is just going to enable a whole world of stuff that we just don't know what's coming yet. But I have to say, I haven't heard this much buzz in the developer community in like a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing like Web3. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was looking at previous hype cycles that, you know, 
Gertner has kind of coined and looking at previous technologies and how they've weathered those storms. And we know that AI has had summers and winters of increases in investment sentiment and decreases in investment, investor sentiment and interest. And so what, what I find interesting is that it's not always just about the technology maturity and limitations, which of course have an impact on how integrated these technologies become, but also on other things like do we find real use cases? Do we, does the ROI, do we reach ROI within a certain period for investors to feel that it's worth continuing to invest in? What regulatory pressure do we run up against? What infrastructure is required for it to scale out? Because just because we prove it in small use cases doesn't mean it'll be successful on a larger scale. Consumer demand, of course, if there's no real use for it or need for it or gap, then it just kind of dies out. And also some of the ethical challenges like we see with autonomous vehicles with technology being there in many cases, but some questions being raised about the model's uh, decision-making and then also regulatory issues with getting those cars out on the road. So, you know, at any other stage, like we said, investments are really speculative and things are still emerging and we're still learning. Yeah. And I mean, of course, the objective of this webinar is really to understand that to how do we look as investors at investment opportunities that come at us because it's super young, super early days. I mean, I saw in January, I saw that there were not even 300 generative AI startups. End of Feb, I got a list and there were already 600. So double in a month. Mm -hmm. And I, I also saw and looking in terms of funding in 2020, about 300 million only globally was funded in generative AI, where last year it was nearing 3 billion that already got into generative AI. So it's exploding. And as investors, you sort of want to be part of it. But that also gets to the question of where is that value being created in this whole chain? Mm -hmm. Because you already see these large organizations like the Microsoft and the Googles launching it and making it available for free. So they're already commoditizing this. And so mm -hmm. where is going to be that value capture? Because I think we all agree, so many use cases, but where is that value capture going to be? Any thoughts about that? Sure, you want to go first. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, that's a really cool question. There's the model builders, the Googles and the Microsoft, the big players, also the open source ones, which are trying to make it more equitable for everyone, accessible. They are definitely providing a lot of value because it's just impossible to train these really huge models on your own. But it's also not really possible for us as angel investors to really buy into that opportunity. So I guess for us, it would be more like looking at the consumers, right? And right now, some of the use cases are frankly underwhelming. People are like, oh, I'm using ChatGPT, but then I'm like, you know, summarizing my customer reviews or something like that. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you have to look for, are they really adding value? Are they really, or are they just, you know, really good at going to market? I was going to mention, I think it depends on how we dissect the space. As angel investors, I mean, the companies we invest in could be enterprise, like B2B or B2BC or B2C, right? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of look for gaps in the market where there's a lot of opportunity to automate highly technical or difficult or time-consuming processes and make them more accessible to people. Like video creation is obviously a big area, right? Where yeah. previously it wasn't really accessible to but personally, you need to know how to use all the software. You might need someone to edit this and that. And Micah, you've been experimenting with this and using some of these tools, right, to make your job easier. And so I think there are clear use cases, particularly in the creative industries, 
where those opportunities are wide open and where there's not been a lot of progress with tools in the past and it requires a high level of skill. And then obviously there are industries in which, again, very, very high skill oriented requires maybe a lot of money to get things done, maybe it takes a lot of time to get things done. And so therefore there's a gap for a tool to come mm-hmm. in that makes things easier. So I look more at landscaping segmenting of what kind of business model do you have? What kind of core need are you addressing? And some areas are more open to that kind of disruption and some are perhaps less open. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think I really like actually the collaborative use cases. Are, I think those are really interesting where the user has still has control over the content, but it's helping me be a better writer. The coding ones have been really, really, really successful, actually, like Copilot literally spits out code, but you still it still could be inaccurate. So you still need some sense of understanding what's going on, but it, it can really accelerate learning and can really accelerate development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tons of use cases. Or replit, yeah. That gets mm-hmm. as well, because sometimes people, I mean, I already noticed that with AI, people say like, we are an AI startup. And then like, but what's the real AI here? Are you just using it because you have some code in there? Some code doesn't make something AI. And that goes the same here as well. A startup can claim we're generative AI, but mm-hmm. what is that real generative AI piece? Well, I am not an engineer. Shemaine, you are, right? So are there some things that's that we can go for as non-techies, but as investors, can we ask for some questions? Do you have some tips for us there? Or like, what are some of the questions that you could ask? Do we see, is this real? Or are they just claiming they have generative AI, but they actually don't? Mm-hmm. Right. I suppose I would start with asking which of the platforms or large language models are you using and, and why? Why did you pick this one? I mean, for text space, it's most likely going to be OpenAI, GPT-3, or now GPT-4. Text-to-image will probably be DALI, Staple Diffusion, Midjourney. They should be able to articulate why they picked one over the other. And then I would really try to call them out on what value are you adding on top of just calling the APIs. There was a really funny meme I saw, which, which was like, I have a Gen AI startup. And then, oh, I just call an API. I mean, so, yeah, um, yeah, you know, exactly, I because... Basically, most of the startups are using those open source language models that are produced by these big companies, because there's no way on earth, I think, as a small company, you can create your own model, right? Too much time, too much work uh, to generate Mm -hmm. that. So you're using any of those big ones. Yeah, but they could be fine tuning them at least or trying to improve an offering a little bit or like building a really good product around it. You're really looking for some kind of defensibility and technical capability, right? Like, how are we using the API? For text generation, I think maybe a good quick question might be like, how do you handle the fact that ChatGPT hallucinates? It generates, and it can make up facts because it's essentially a network. It's trained to predict, to write a text, to predict the next words, but it can just make up stuff. And that's a very common problem. So it's a red flag. They don't even know this, that ChatGPT hallucinates. And then maybe some bonus points if they've considered it and then actually built into their product something around framing the results and suggestions and then giving the users some kind of power to give feedback or mark things as wrong or correct the mistakes. And also some awareness of also of the other limitations, like the fact that there could be biases in the data because machine learning is always going to inherit the biases of the data that it's trained on. So basically what you're saying is ask which model they're using ask what they built themselves 
and mm-hmm. what is used by others. Ask whether what they do with the hallucinations, uh, as, yeah. as, as <laughs> like how, how do they deal with that? Because it is a fact, as you say, that the systems currently hallucinate. So you need to deal with that one way or the other. So I think those were the key things for you, right? To say like, that's, that's yeah. how you react on the technical side of things, at least as a non-techie, because we can't go super deep. Those are the things to, to verify. Is this real or is this a lot of BS that they're putting in there? Yeah. And then I look for a lot of data-driven discussion. Like if you ask them, how do you evaluate the generated output? How do you know if you're making improvements in your prompts that your, if your product is getting better? And, you know, there's not like one answer, but you would hope that they're not like, oh, we just know, or we just look at it, right? You're looking for some kind of discussion, some kind of consideration, some kind of data. That data, mm-hmm. what you mean is, so if they say like, hey, with us, you will spend 25% less time on achieving this task or whatever. Now, that's what you mean, right? Like, how do they sure, back that yes, up? Exactly. How do they measure yeah. that? Um, where is that exactly. coming from? Or is that just blah, blah? Um, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> and I think this also links into how do you even distinguish a real honest startup versus a lot of blah, blah, BS startup in general? Because I think that there's a lot of overlap that you don't only see in generative AI, but just in any startup. I mean, Catherine, maybe to you, what are in general where you feel, okay, no matter what, whether generative AI or not, these are some of the BS filter questions that you need to ask to understand where where is the startup going? Sure. And I think one thing that we had discussed earlier is making sure you keep your investment thesis in mind. So just because it's a really cool, shiny thing doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything goes out the window. These startups obviously work within certain industries, address certain challenges. So if, for example, a startup comes across that has interesting technology underlying it, but isn't necessarily something you look to invest in, well, then make sure you consider that. So Obviously, one of the first questions is, do I know this industry and the challenges it faces? If not, then you should probably get educated about it if it's something that you're still interested in. Of course, we look at the right founder and team on board, looking at track record, traction, partners. They don't have to be necessarily machine learning experts. However, we probably want to see a nice combination of team members that know how to apply that, how to do more than just call those APIs, but add value on top from a technical and product perspective. From a product perspective, we talked a little bit about the importance of accuracy control from the user perspective, making sure there's transparency around where data is coming from. This is a big issue with machine learning in general, right? Because we don't really always know where the data is coming from and we can't just accept everything as the source of truth when we don't have that information. Um, And in addition, things like data privacy, which is popping up with other companies right now in the news getting in trouble for some of their practices and policies. Another important thing, of course, as investors is we care about their growth and customer acquisition plan. So how many customers do you have? How do you get from here to there? And then a more user experience question is, how is this a better alternative to, and then you can name another startup in that space. For example, if a company is doing image generation, you might wanna say, how is this a better alternative to Dolly? And what you're evaluating here is for their product thinking and expertise, their differentiation of the use case and integration into workflow. As operators, we know about the industries and what the challenges are. And of course, we'd always encourage for people to actually use the tools before you invest in it. So Mm -hmm. for example, if you're investing in an image generation tool, it'd be great to go try out 
Modali, Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, all these others, just to see how they work and then try out also the startups and see if you can, from a user perspective, see how this is better or different or worse or whatever it is. I think that last one is a, is a good one. Yeah. We had a mm-hmm. startup pitching to us and, and we were like, hey, this was about image and generative <laughs> AI. Yeah. So we were like, hey, give us a demo. And sure. when, uh, we're on the phone and we're like, yeah, then you need to create an account. And I'm mm-hmm. like, hold on, you're pitching <laughs> investors right now. Yeah. Give us a demo here in the conversation that we're having right now. So that mm-hmm. feels very wary if, if yeah. they're starting to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they should be able to differentiate their use case and product experience more than just, oh, we have a better model, which I would be wary of. And if they're using the same foundational model or if they created their own to say that and then back up their claim, like Shamin said, or that they're just riding the wave and not actually differentiating and just getting investor money, which happens all the time as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think what you said as well is, is that growth question. I'm also very curious, specifically in this whole generative AI space, because as we know, mm-hmm. we're just at the beginning. No mm-hmm. one knows where this is going to go. This is a complete new market, although it's disrupting existing markets. So there, there is something that we can say about that. And I always love it when they say like, yeah, we're going to reach a hundred million by, by 2025. Well, how are you going to do yeah. that if you don't have the right people on the team? That's where the team becomes important too, right? Um, right, right. So, yeah. Yeah. How, how do we, I mean, I think question for both of you, because team team is always important. One of our <laughs> angels, and I, and I love her quote is, do I want to share my cupcake with the founder? <laughs> do I like this founder that much that I want to... <laughs> is share this precious cupcake with that founder. So that's an amazing test, of course. But what else can we look for? Specific in generative AI, what type of team do we need? What type of people do we need? Hmm. It's a very generic question, and it depends, of course, on what type of startup. But what would you be looking for in terms of skills? Do we need a full tech team? Or maybe we don't because we're using these models. Mm -hmm. I feel like at, at this stage, we do need some very intimate knowledge of how the model works. So I believe you still need engineers. You still need technical people. You might not need a machine learning expert. I would invest in a company that has just strong technical talent, uh, but not necessarily specialize in NLP. Yeah. Um, but it yeah. also depends on what they are building. Um, but you still yeah. need that core. The CTO is definitely a key player with his or her team. At least, yeah, some kind of technical advisor. What throws up a red flag for me is whenever someone just focuses purely on the tech capability. Like we've seen this so many times. We're like we're a VR company. We're a, like that's what happened when mobile came out. We're like we're a mobile. But the thing is, they're not really obsessed with the challenge or the issue or the industry or you know what I mean. So if you're mm-hmm. just Oriented around the tech, what I see is a lot of people, again, riding the wave, and they will use that to catch uneducated investors off guard who are looking to invest or capitalize on that wave. That's where I've just heard those narratives too many times where someone's like, we're a VR startup. Okay, but what do you actually drop? What's the actual issue? And they have issues articulating it because for some reason in their minds and in the minds of some investors, because this you know new technology trend that somehow it exists outside of the realm of how you should evaluate other startups. And so I think it's important that if a company is positioning themselves too much in that way to avoid scrutiny for their other 
other parts of the business that should be strong, then that's probably going to be a red flag for you that like they don't know how to articulate their value proposition. They don't have a strong business model. They don't have a strong go-to-market plan. They don't have the technical expertise. Those flags all start kind of getting raised. And it's that solid business model that needs to be underneath it. That because without mm-hmm. that, the tech just becomes a shiny object. Yeah. It's not going to survive in the long term. And you really need to yeah, understand yeah. what's the problem that I'm solving here and be hyper-focused on fixing mm-hmm. that problem where mm-hmm. you use generative mm-hmm. AI right now instead of something else. In terms of the teams, <laughs> where do you get those people from? What type of tech people do you need? Because <laughs> all of a sudden, we all need to be generative AI experts. But maybe, Shemaine, you can give us some background stories there in the, from the engineering community. Yeah, like I said, what I'm seeing is I haven't seen so much buzz all over and not, not just from people who are historically doing machine learning and all that. Just a lot of general software engineers who I actually generally believe can build really good products with this technology. It's more about understanding, being able to follow along, being able to make trade-offs, be able to, you know, because you're, you're dependent on an API. Don't forget from, as a consumer, you depend on an API from one of these companies. So things evolve, new versions get updated, pricing is going to change. You might need to switch from one to the other. So it's more about being able to understand those trade-offs. So I'm like, again, I'm not saying that the founders have to be technical. I just do believe that some some kind of like technical maturity is is I would value. I've seen founders that I was reading about the JSDI founder. He he apparently just saw some tweets about ChatGPT two and a half years back, and then just decided to make a company, and it's like hugely successful. And I think it's because they built a really good product really quickly. And embraced all those principles that what Catherine was mentioning earlier about making the collaborative mode of building a product where it's suggesting things to you, but you're still in control and it's still transparent. And so that's good product thinking, right? You need good product thinking in a place where the platform is so widely available and so easy for people to use. We need to differentiate with the product thinking and the go-to-market. Yeah. And I think as well, what you see, I mean, I even saw that in Japan, there was now a company, their job descriptions already have in there, you need to be able to work with ChatGPT. Oh, wow. That went very fast in just three months. And they also see that it's not just for the techies. It's really Mm -hmm. across all the different type of businesses and type of roles that you see in an organization. So that's an interesting, but that's, we can have a full other conversation purely about that, I would say. And so if we, if we go back, so that team is important. Yes, tech, not necessarily super deep ML techies, but definitely enough to understand that user experience, hyper-focus on that customer. And I think as well, understanding that it probably is about getting fast into the market right now. You can't just keep on adding features to your product, like, no, 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 we're not yet ready to launch. You need to go right now because you will be too late because every day new startups are getting into the market. So you need to dare to stick out and and just go for it super fast. Yeah. Shemaine and I have been talking about first mover advantage for a while now (laughs) and whether or not it's paid off in, in the different generative AI startups that are starting to emerge and be more prominent in certain places. And I think I don't know. I go back and forth. Jury's out in in a certain way, mm-hmm. but also if you have a really strong product orientation and you get a big share of market now, perhaps you can own and continue to lead. Uh, it's not clear to me if they can sustain that or if the startups that have emerged as forerunners will continue to be forerunners because, again, there's so many moving components 
But yeah, it is an interesting space to explore and see how those forerunners fare over time. And Mm -hmm. I think there's just so many external factors, right, as to the team that supports it, to the continued technical advancements and everything that forerunners may continue to lead or fall behind. Yeah, super, super fun. Any any thoughts on the future? Where is this going to go? Where will we be a year from now? <laughs> any thoughts in generative um, AI? It's a tricky one. Yeah, I mean, I just think from the tech side, like I said, I just feel like the possibilities are quite astounding. I can't predict exactly where we're going to be, but I mean, we were, we were in conversations where people were talking about designing programming languages, mm-hmm. like how those would evolve to work better with generative AI, mm-hmm. you know? So they we're talking right now about how generative AI is going to change us. It's going to change how we work, mm-hmm. but, you know, generative AI could also change how we speak and how we interact. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. At the same time, <laughs> yeah. At the same time, I do think that there is also potential for the internet to get a lot, lot worse. So I, I really want to ask this question. At least for me personally, I think people should, not people should, but I would like to think that people should stick to their values when they're investing mm-hmm. and kind of hold on to that. You know, this, I know it's a very exciting time, but for me, the question is going to be, is this product making the internet better or worse? Because there's so much potential right now for making the internet a lot worse, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? It could yeah. be that. All our advertising, all our content yeah. is all machine-generated content that's just designed to be clickbait. And it's not that it's not already like that, but it just could just be like 10 times or a billion times worse. Yeah, I, I also yeah. agree strongly yeah. as angel investors. I mean, obviously, different people have different motivations and different things they consider. But personally, also, I think it's important to consider the implications of the technologies that we're supporting because they we look at a lot of companies that have had perhaps an adverse impact on our society and we couldn't have anticipated all of those issues. However, it's probably not a big jump in logic to have anticipated some of them. For example, there's a lot of generative AI happening in the creative industry that I've worked in. So what does that mean for our illustrators and our graphic designers and our authors and our artists and our musicians? Those jobs Some of those jobs will disappear. Some new jobs and functions will appear. It will help many people get access to resources they've never had before, like myself. But at the same time, it does have a real impact on the livelihood of people today and on how these industries shape up in the future. And we're already seeing this happen with artists' work and rights being impacted by image generation. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting potential there, but I always temper with the reality that we live in. And sometimes there's too big of a gap. So I think it's important to keep that a bit. The other place I see a lot of potential impact is, of course, on enterprise productivity, which is where we see the big players already going into Microsoft and others integrating this into their existing tools like Teams and other things or integrating it into search engines. So Slack is also integrating it. Yeah, yeah. Slack's in it. Like, Enterprise is a huge place for automation. We know that saving hours and saving minutes is money. So it makes sense that they would innovate in this space. And if you're mm-hmm. a big enterprise, you can just roll out right across all of your users and the mm-hmm. business model can reflect that. Yeah. So those are kind of the areas that I see. 
And it's it's interesting. I mean, I'm also a professor at a university, and in a month from now, my students need to write an essay. So I'm like, oh my, right? I mean, they're just going to use ChatGPT. <laughs> but that what I like about it because I actually already told them that I will allow them to use it because like I can say they won't, but I mean, yes, they're detection yeah. tools, but it's going to be too complicated. Yeah. But what I love about it is that it's challenging me because I now need to think about the different assignments. It's still going to be an essay, but what's the real question? What's the thing that I want them to highlight so that it's not going to be an easy prompt, at least, but that they really need to think deep about that and where I can see the quality difference. It's the same mm-hmm. with the calculator. I'm a math person, and I remember with my grandpa back in the day, when I was doing my math homework, he was like, you can't use a calculator. That's not what I used in my day. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, <laughs> you can give someone a calculator, but it doesn't mean that someone will be good at math. And right. um, I Absolutely. can see the same thing happening here with generative AI yeah. as well. You can give someone the tool, but it doesn't mean that the output will be good. And I think yeah. that that's, you still need those experts and we still have the different, I mean, at least I can only think about what and immense beautiful opportunities there will be in the future. So I'm super okay. excited about that. And I do love that you are embracing it because I know there's yeah. a lot of fight against it, you know, a lot in, of in education. Yeah. Um, a lot of fear and a lot of fighting, but I, I do think embracing it is the way to go. I mean, of course, it's a big question about like how. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you can't fight it. There's a lot of fear mongering always when a new technology comes out, like they're going to take everybody's jobs. Like, hold, hold, hold on. Certainly, it will take some people's jobs, and usually those kinds of jobs or skill sets may be at the lower level of the spectrum where it's easily automated. But I think what is interesting for those of us, particularly in the creative industries, to think about how we use them to better our work. And so one thing I was starting to think about is, okay, let's say we have Dolly or a plethora of other image generation tools. How do we use this to speed up our cycles and from a graphic design angle? Like maybe we use this for inspiration. We show it to our clients for initial feedback. And then from there, we can iterate super quickly rather than waiting for the graphic designer to create everything and then taking all the time to create different iterations, right? So we start thinking about how it enables us rather than how it replaces us. But that, of course, that creates a bigger gap between those who know how to use these specialized tools, which are still the the learning curve is still quite high for some of them. Right. They're not totally accessible, nor do people necessarily want to invest the time in learning how to use them. So it's going to create a gap between the people who have specialized skills Mm -hmm. and know how to use these tools and the people that have specialized tools or the people that don't have specialized skills. And the gap will continue to increase. Right. As more tools emerge. Yeah, I totally agree that it's going to accelerate. It can ex- there's a potential to accelerate, but also to increase this gap in inequality. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge I see, and the reason why I was saying have and have nots, is both on a like if it's a consumer level product or an enterprise level product. Enterprises, you know, are big big elephants, right? It's really difficult for them to move. So even if the capability is rolled out, the adoption across the enterprise or the systems changes that need to happen are quite significant. So that's where I do think that companies even will, they'll experience a big gap between companies that are able to leverage these capabilities and automate more of their processes or replace customer support by tickets. Yeah, like better chat robots or whatever it is, (laughs) chat bots or whatever it is that they're trying to roll out. We always know that the tech is usually not the issue, right? It's the people, it's the system. So to what extent people can integrate and create systems that make sense for their companies, then those companies will accelerate and other companies will be perhaps left behind a bit. 
I can't wait. <laughs> I think this is a very exciting time. I'm yeah. really curious how we're going to look back on this in two years, five years from now, right? What, what, yeah. because we can't imagine being without a mobile. We can't imagine being without internet. Yeah. Oh, random fun fact. ChatGPT can speak Singlish. It can speak Singlish? Yeah. <laughs> no. And considering, you know, Singlish is not a language that has like a real proper dictionary. It can speak some Singlish. Try it. Try it. <laughs> Are you playing a part in building that model? And <laughs> it probably can solve them. It probably can solve yeah, them. Probably. Yeah. Those funny. things are doable now. Wow! But even Singlish, I should build a solver now. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the next company we build. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, as you said, Singlish is not a language, and it's only a very small population, and it even. <laughs> Take a wash. That is that is impressive. <laughs> good. Thank you so much, ladies, for this good conversation, for talking us yeah, through what is thank you. And and what kind of questions can we ask? What kind of questions will help us to be better informed? I think, as both of you said already, stay to your own values. And invest in the industry that you're already aware of or that you want to be aware of, want to be part of, and, and stick with your own values no matter what you're investing in. Thank you. Thank you. That's fine. Thanks, everyone. We hope you enjoyed looking behind the scenes. The objective of this podcast is to demystify angel investing and to share insights so you can learn more about the world of venture capital. Interested to see if you can become an angel investor yourself? Contact us via info at epicangelnetwork.com or go to our website at epicangelnetwork.com. And please remember, we're not a financial advisor. All opinions expressed by Epic Angels are intended as educational and reflect the personal research and experiences of the team.